Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So far our reading from God's word. Mm, thank you, Trevor. Um, please keep your Bibles handy. We're going to work our way through those verses. It may be a familiar story to some of you, but there's some really important things in the details there. Uh, we're going to be keep, keep you on going back there, so please keep it handy so that you can follow when we do that. Uh, you might have caught the breaking news uh, over this past week. Um, okay, look, <laughs> breaking might be a slight exaggeration, but there has been this new evidence uh, of the existence of thylacines, the Tasmanian tiger, uh, in our state. It's very exciting. Uh, Well-known thylacine, uh, hunter seems the wrong word, uh, finder, searcher. Uh, he's come forward with his irrefutable evidence that they are there, photos indeed, that they are still alive. Um, in case you haven't seen them, uh, his photos turn out to be some really bad shots of paddy melons um, and a shot of what looks like a kitten. Um, yeah, it's not, not quite so irrefutable as his standing by it. Now, but whether you've seen the photos or not, I mean, you probably know where this story's going, but you, you've got to admire the bloke, don't you? Like, he's taken a lot on himself, true. He seems a, li he seems a little bit, you know, a bit left of field, we'll say, a bit, bit of a nutter. Um, but he's pretty determined. He's pretty dedicated to his cause, isn't he? Uh, he's, he's going against the flow uh, of popular opinion, of scientific opinion. And, and despite what everyone's saying, he's sticking by his guns. I, I, think that's, I think that's pretty amazing. It's cost him a great deal. You know, he's given up his job. He's spent all this money to, to go and search uh, for Tasmanian tigers. Despite all that ridicule, I think you've got to admire him to some degree. Now, you might not have caught it, or maybe you did catch it, but our passage today that we just read tells us that following Jesus actually ought to be a bit similar. 
It is a path of going against the flow, going against the flow of popular and rational thought. It's a path of sticking to our guns despite ridicule from all corners. And doing so even at great personal cost. That's what following Jesus looks like. That's what this story tells us. And so the question this this passage forces us to ask of ourselves, is this the sort of Jesus you're willing to follow? Is this the sort of following that you're glad to be about? Now, of course, there's one big difference at play here, isn't there? Uh, Mr. Mr. Thylacine Hunter has been and is being proved wrong. It's been shown that he's uh, following a lost cause. But Christians, followers of Jesus, even though our cause seems equally foolish and equally ridiculous, are being and have been proved right. This, this crazy and illogical following that this passage uh, speaks to us of, that Jesus calls you and I to, it turns out it's actually not so crazy after all. And this morning we're going to see why as we unpack this story together. Uh, before we do that, we're going to do just a little bit of catching up. Uh, it's been nine weeks since we've been in Mark, so it's good to just reorient ourselves in the book. Uh, I just want to remind you of the structure of the book of Mark. I've got a picture uh, overhead to show you uh, of what that structure looks like. You can see it there. Uh, we call Mark a, a book having a crown-shaped structure. And it's built about these three high points in the book. The first is right at the start, that description of Jesus as the Son of God. The second is in the middle. We've seen it, Peter's confession. Uh, you are the Son of God. And the third we're going to get to in a few weeks' time, the confession of the centurion uh, standing at Jesus' cross. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And the first half of the book uh, unpacks, well, what does that mean? Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? The second half of the book, from Peter's confession onwards, looks at that question, well, what's he all about? What does that mean? We can, we can drop that down now. But where we are now is, is really at the crux of Mark's story. This, this long last quarter of the book is, is all about the cross. And as we get closer to the cross, time slows down. We, 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 Mark draws it out. And he does that to show us why this cross matters and, and, and what's happening here as Jesus draws closer to it. Now, if Mark 15 is all about the crucifixion, Mark 14 is all about Jesus being abandoned by everyone on the way to that cross. The crowd falls away, the opposition falls away, even his disciples and followers fall away from him. And by the end of Mark 14, Jesus is standing there alone facing this. We see the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him becoming too high. And it all starts here. Now, if you've been following us uh, through this series, you might remember one of Mark's favourite things to do, and one of the things Mark loves to do is build a Mark sandwich. Uh, I've got a picture to remind you of what a Mark sandwich looks like. Uh, what Mark loves to do is to take one story and to break it in half and stick something else in the middle. And that's his way of helping us to understand not only the halves, but to get a better understanding of what's in the middle. And this story is a classic one of those things. You see, at the start, we have the chief priests uh, scheming and uh, conniving how to kill Jesus. And at the end, 
Again, the chief priests, now having found their way. But in the middle, we have this picture of Jesus and this woman, the meat of this sandwich, helping us to understand the whole even better. And so we're going to pull this story apart. We're going to come to understand it. So we can bring that down. Uh, Turn to your Bibles. We're going to read the bread of the sandwich. We're going to read verse 1 and 2 and verse 10 and 11 again. Uh, Verse 1. Now the uh, Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And come down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched an opportunity to hand him over it's it's terribly ironic isn't it when we read how these religious leaders were acting towards Jesus I mean remember who we're dealing with here this is not you know the city council who are just crabby at how much publicity Jesus is getting this is the religious leaders these are the people who study the Bible for a living who knew all the prophecies, who knew someone was coming to rescue God's people. These are the guys who should have been on the inside track. Not only have they got that great background in the Bible, but they've also spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus, seeing what he's done, hearing what he's said. With all of that, they should be in his corner. They should be his number one followers. And what about Judas? Now, three years at least now, Judas has been with Jesus on that inside track, hearing what Jesus has said, seeing what Jesus has done, hearing the explanations. And yet these people who are supposed to be insiders, what do we see? They're far on the outside, aren't they? They're talking about how to kill Jesus, how to, how to get rid of him. Why? Because Jesus is threatening something that they are not willing to give up. Jesus is threatening something they're not willing to give up. We see it in the religious leaders. They see Jesus as a threat to their position and a threat to their authority and their sway over the people. I mean, look, look at the way they discuss killing him. They don't say, well, should we kill him? Is it a right thing to kill him? So they're basically just saying, uh, we can't kill him now because the crowds won't like it. Like, it's so cold-blooded, isn't it? We'd, lo- we'd lose out if we killed him now. All they fear is his erosion of their authority, of their position and entitlement. And what about Judas? We see, I mean, we see Judas's heart revealed, don't we? Uh, we? We know in the other accounts that he's one of these ones who is astonished at the waste of this expensive perfume. He, he sees Jesus' disdain for material riches and wealth Uh, And he feels threatened by that because that's what he wants. Um, We read in one of the other Gospels that Judas has been stealing from the the, the money bag. He's been seeking his way, trying to get rich off of Jesus. And when he sees how Jesus treats money, he's willing to give him away for 30 pieces of silver. And the religious leaders, we're told, they are delighted. The word is literally joy. Joy. They are filled with joy at the chance to kill Jesus. Both of these groups, Judas and the religious leaders, they were on the inside track. They had the position, they had the knowledge, they had the teaching, or so they thought. 
And when Jesus threatened what they were holding dear and failed to give them more of it, well, then it's time to get rid of Jesus, isn't it? It brings to mind two, uh, two very different occasions on which I've served food to people. Uh, very different places, very different people. Uh, the first was in Christchurch, and it was a, at a soup kitchen that our church ran there. It's right in the centre of town. It served addicts and prostitutes and homeless people. Uh, there was 70 or 80 who came along. The food was pretty modest. It was soup and bread. Uh, it was very simple. And the people who came, although pretty rough, were very thankful. You know, they, were, they were so kind and so polite and so gracious. It was really it was quite a lovely place to go. Uh, the other occasion I served food was in the restaurant I used to work in. Uh, and on this occasion, we were doing lunch for the local Probus Club. Now, our boss had gone all out. He'd put together a, a special menu for this lunch. He'd given them all these freebies and samples of all this, the best stuff that we had. Uh, it, was, it was pretty special. And the people were awful. <laughs> they, they were really horrible. Uh, they were rude and demanding and impatient, and we all left there very upset as staff. Because it, it, it reveals a problem with us, doesn't it? When we, when we think we deserve something, when we think we're entitled to something, it changes how we receive things, doesn't it? It changes how we accept things. That, that, that selfishness that says, I belong here, I, I deserve this, it breeds more selfishness. And we see that in this story. These people who thought they deserved, who thought they should have, they find Jesus to be terribly disappointing. Because Jesus doesn't give us what our sinful minds think we need or think we deserve. Jesus gives us something entirely different, as we're going to see in a moment. But the problem is, it is far too easy for us to be that person. We might want to distance ourselves. You know, no one says, oh, I feel a bit like Judas. We don't want to say that. We don't want to say we're like these religious leaders. But when we consider ourselves, actually the same problem runs through us as well. In fact, our, our world even applauds it because it's kind of a logical thing, isn't it? it? It kind of makes sense. You know, the question, what can I get out of this? How can I get what I deserve? I know what I need, I'll see that I get it. That's a rational way to view life, isn't it? That's a really logical and easy to, to explain way. You know, you've earned it. <laughs> that's, that's what we say to each other. And at its heart, this selfish sense of entitlement. I deserve it, therefore I should get it. And that doesn't fly with Jesus. And Mark is saying, be careful. Look at yourself and don't go this way. Don't go this way. Because it comes in all sorts of forms. Now, yeah, we, we might not be looking for ways to kill Jesus. We not, might not be looking for ways to get money out of him. But we play out our self-entitlement in all sorts of ways, don't we? It sometimes looks like just coasting in our walk with Jesus. You know, not, not really striving, not sacrificing anymore because we say, well, I've done my time. You know, someone else can give it up now. I've done my bit. 
We see it in that desire to just be comfortable. You know, this is the way I like it. Why should it always be someone else's way? We see it in our comparing to one another. Now comparing to those whom we think we don't deserve it. You know, I don't think they'll ever come back. I don't think they'll ever make it here. They just don't have what it takes. <laughs> Implication, not like me. People should listen to me. I've been a Christian for ages. I know my stuff. Even that sneaking thought, particularly when things go bad. You know, why is this happening to me? Haven't I done, you know, the God stuff? Haven't I done that stuff well? See, there's danger here, isn't there? Because that sounds rational. That, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? But not in Jesus' kingdom. And if that's us, we need to repent. Because that way is destruction. Assume your place. Assume you will get what you need. And you'll miss out. But there is a better way. It doesn't look like it should work. (laughs) It doesn't look like it makes sense. But it does. And we see it in this woman, this nameless woman who appears in this story. Now look with me at verse 3 through 5. Verse 3, While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper... A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Uh, First of all, note where Jesus is. Jesus um, isn't in a palace. He isn't in the best restaurant in, in Bethany or in Jerusalem. Um, He's at Simon's place, Uh, and Simon is known as a leper, presumably an ex-leper by this point, but at the very least, uh, a social outcast. He's on the outside. And Jesus is eating, they're they're sharing this meal, when this nameless woman comes up with this terribly expensive perfume and pours it all over him. (laughs) It's not like, you know, our perfume here, a little squirt here, a little squirt here, and make the bottle last for for 10 years. Uh, doesn't work like that. This, this jar is made out of alabaster. It's uh, completely sealed over so the perfume will last for years and years and years without going stale. But the catch is you have to use it all at once. And that's what she does. But she doesn't spread it around and share it with all her friends and family and then give the, the last little bit to Jesus. The whole lot she pours over him. You know, 300 denarius, we're told, a, a year's wages in one go on Jesus. Just at dinner. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy stuff. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And you, you can hear that in the reaction of the people around her. This, I mean, this lady's gone insane. What's she done? What a waste. And in a sense, they're right, aren't they? Yeah, but it is a terrible waste. It's, it's totally irrational. And yet she's done it. Why? Is she just crazy? Uh, when I was in my teens, um, Dad bought a boat off uh, a guy who used to do quite a bit of tuna fishing. We'd never done tuna fishing before. Uh, so he offered to, as part of the, the sale, to take us out tuna fishing and teach us uh, how to do it. And we're like, well, that's a great deal. So 
uh, off we went, um, up at 3am, down to the east coast, pulled up at the boat ramp at 6am uh, with this guy. And we're, we're loading up all the stuff, we're getting ready to launch the boat. Um, and he looks at us quite seriously and he says, now you didn't bring any bananas with you, did you? <laughs> That's a weird question. Uh, why? No? He's like, well, you can't bring bananas on a boat. Bananas are bad luck. Never bring bananas on a boat. Everyone will tell you that. Uh, that was news to me. It's, I mean, it's, but it's totally crazy, isn't it? But you will meet people. If you go out fishing with a, uh, a proper fisherman and bring a banana, they'll probably throw you over the side with the banana. But they truly believe that. It's, I mean, it's totally irrational, isn't it? You know, it's not like bananas sink boats. Uh, at least not in my experience. Um, it's not like, you know, fish hate the smell of bananas. It, it, there's no reason behind this. And yet for this guy, however crazy that belief is, that's what he believed. That's what he truly held to. He thought that was it. So is this woman just as, as crazy? Has she just got some ridiculous belief in her mind and said that this, this behavior makes sense? I mean, it, it looks just as irrational, doesn't it? You know, she's, she's poured out $50,000 on Jesus' head. She's gone nuts. But not as Jesus sees it. Look at verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What she's done is beautiful. Even though she is an outsider, uh, an unnamed woman in a culture that marginalised women, she has done what she could. And what she's done is beautiful, Jesus says. Now, as a bit of an aside, Jesus isn't saying here that we shouldn't give money to the poor. <laughs> that would be the wrong takeaway from this passage. Uh, it, it, I can see it kind of looks like that, but Jesus is, is making a point here, saying this woman had a chance to do something very special, direct service to Jesus, and she took that chance, and that's a good thing. But what she's done is good. It is crazy to the world, but it is good to Jesus. So how do we reconcile that? Why is it good, not crazy? Well, it's there in the second half of what he says, isn't it? It's there in, in what he says is coming up. Because he contextualizes her deed. He, he draws the bigger picture. He says, this isn't just perfume wasted, poured out and, and gone. He said, this is preparation for what I have come to do. This is preparation for the very heart of my ministry. It is preparing him his death. See, Jesus is showing us here why her deed matters. It's not because of how good her deed was. It's because of how good what Jesus is about to do is. He's going to the cross. He's going to die. She's given her wealth for him, but he is giving himself for her. That's the good news here. That's why this is no waste. That's why this is not irrational. It's an act of giving for the ultimate giver. And we're going to hear it. We're going to even celebrate it together when we have the Lord's Supper next week. Uh, this is my body 
given for you. That's the good news, isn't it? Jesus has come to give his life. He's come to go to the cross, to die there for the ultimate gift so that you can live. Because his gift, his death, it's not pointless, it's not some demonstration to the world, it is effective. Gruesome and bloody though it is, it is beautiful beyond compare. For his death achieves our forgiveness. His punishment, his death, takes away our sin. And that's given freely to anyone who believes. Not as a response uh, for what our gifts might earn, not as something we can achieve by giving enough to Jesus. It is given freely to us, to the insider, to the outsider, to to the good and the bad, you know, humanly speaking, to anyone. Anyone who comes to Jesus, not looking for what they can get from him, but looking for him, they receive him. And this nameless woman who was mocked for what she did, hereby points us to our hope. And not only that, she points us to what a life of following him looks like. She shows us what it means to be a Jesus follower. That to come to him means giving yourself up to him entirely and to his mercy. And to follow him means continuing to do the same. Not living for what you can get, not living for what you can achieve or have, but living for him. Now Paul uses the word, a living sacrifice. Jesus just says, doing what you could. Even if the world thinks it's crazy, just doing what you could. I don't know about you, it it makes me wonder. Is our life, is my life, that sort of following? Are our choices for Jesus, our costs that we're willing to pay, the things we give up for him, are, are, are those things so big are they so radical and so different that when the world looks at us they say man those people are crazy (laughs) do do our friends and and our neighbors do our unbelieving family just look at our life choices and say you know they're nice people but gee they do some weird things for that jesus guy it's a hard question to face because (laughs) I reckon we've all got a sneaking suspicion that we know what the answer is. (laughs) And we know that the answer is we don't actually stand out that much. So we need to ask, what is it you could do? Not what is it the minister tells me to do, what is it that they did that I could possibly do, but what is it that you could do in your life? in your situation, where you are? What choices are there for you? Choices of giving to Jesus crazy in crazy ways that are nuts, apart from in light of what he's given to you. It won't be wasted. As um, Jesus said it would be, this woman's extravagant sacrifice has been remembered wherever he's spoken of. 
And anything you sacrifice for him won't be wasted either. It might look crazy now. It might feel completely bonkers. But remember Jesus' gift to you. He is coming back. And on that day when he stands in front of you, nothing you could possibly give up now will feel like too much. What she's done is beautiful. That's what he said to her. Wouldn't that be something to hear when he describes your acts for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would help us to treasure Jesus and treasure what he has given for us so greatly that nothing, nothing is too much for us. Father, we confess that we find it so easy to act just like the world, to look for what we could get, to only make really measured or rational decisions for Jesus and really just to play it safe. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. For Jesus has come not so we could get what we want, he's come to give his own self to us. We pray that as his followers that would be reflected in our life. Help us to think carefully about what we could do, about how we can gladly give ourselves in service to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.